Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, June 22nd. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mosh Wanunu. And I am Jill Wagner. Mosh, I felt like you enunciated every single syllable in your last name there. You know, it's funny, Jill. I, I had an opportunity to appear as a guest uh, on a couple podcasts this week that'll be coming out. Uh, look out for me on the Recode podcast with Peter Kafka. That'll be out today. And then I taped with a duo of former traders who've started a website and podcast called Wall Street Skinny that are uh, trying to break down financial concepts for everybody. And one of them brought up that, like, I think you say your name too quickly. Uh, at the top of your podcast. So I was like, for you, I will make sure to enunciate Wanunu to make sure you know how to pronounce it. Mosh, funnily enough, I almost have the opposite problem as you, where my name is so short that sometimes people think it's Joe or Michelle. So sometimes that poses a problem. I think the lesson in life, Jill, is we all just need to slow down just a bit, especially us uh, who live in the New York area where we tend to talk too fast. That's the reputation. So I try to make a point of slowing down once in a while and enunciating, enunciating my words. I think we can speed up, though, and get to some news. Let's get there. Let's go. <laughs> okay. All right. To the headlines, the latest on that missing Titanic tourist sub. Time is running out to find the five people on board. But on Wednesday, a sliver of hope. Another important story happening at sea. A fishing boat sunk near Greece last week with hundreds of migrants on board. Most are still missing and feared dead. On to the economy. The Fed chair says more rate hikes will likely be on the way as the U.S. has a long way to go to get inflation under control. Amazon under fire for allegedly duping millions of people into enrolling in Prime and then making it very difficult to opt out. At the same time, Amazon sets a date for its Prime Day sales. If you think you're out, they just suck <laughs> you right back in. <laughs> and how about some uh, lab-grown chicken? Well, now it's a step closer to making its way to your plate. Plus, the high school class of 2023 looks back on four years of the pandemic. Mosh, I included this story because we really don't know the long-term effects of the pandemic, especially on young people. Yeah, and this spring marks uh, graduation for the class that experienced COVID its freshman year and really had to live with it through its entire four years. Okay, Mosh, you've got On This Day in History. Your clue today, wax on, wax off. Wax on, <laughs> wax off. Jill, did that clue do anything for you? I'm guessing Mr. Miyagi Karate Kid. Ding, 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 ding. Big day in Karate Kid history, everybody. Okay, let's start with what we know about the massive search still ongoing for the tourist submersible that went missing on Sunday while heading to the wreck of the Titanic. The vessel only had about 90 hours of oxygen, which means time is quickly running out to find the five people on board. The sub's air supply is expected to run out at some point this morning, according to the U.S. Coast Guard. However, some experts say that if the people on board can remain calm and breathe less deeply and less frequently, they might be able to eke out several more hours. Dr. Cornfield, a pulmonologist at Stanford, telling the New York Times that they can very modestly change the curve. For instance, if they slow their breathing enough to gain about 10% more time, 
Well, that would add nine hours of survival to the possible window for rescue. And on Wednesday, there was some hope in the way of banging noises picked up by sonar. So, Jill, I've been watching the daily briefings by the U.S. Coast Guard and authorities that are um, overseeing this search. The Rear Admiral John Mauger, you might have seen him uh, in media appearances at this press conference. He confirmed yesterday that an aircraft with sonar buoys detected that noise, that banging in the water while searching for Titan. So that happened on Tuesday, uh, and they've been trying to figure out throughout the day on Wednesday if that banging was actually associated with human beings. Uh, he notes, and many of the authorities who say this stuff say, say that the ocean is loud, and there are many possible sources out there that could create this sort of noise. And so they had a bunch of experts studying the audio to try to figure out if, in fact, that banging that was detected by the sonar buoy could actually have been associated with the submersible. The issue is they still don't know where it is. They actually doubled the size of the search area on Wednesday to now, they keep going with now twice the size of Connecticut. It was 7,600 square miles on Tuesday, now about 15,000 square miles uh, as of Wednesday, where they've been searching around this area, seeing if the submersible could be floating on the surface of the ocean, or is somewhere down below at various depths. Remember, the Titanic is two and a half miles below sea level. They could be anywhere uh, from the surface down to the bottom. Among the tools that the Coast Guard is using here are two what they call ROVs, remotely operated vehicles in the water uh, to search uh, the area where the noises came from. A reminder here, there are five people on board, a British adventurer, a French diver, a Pakistani father and son, and the founder of Ocean Gate Expeditions, the company that operates the tour. Tickets, again, were $250,000 a pop for this trip. Uh, and it does come, Jill, as Ocean Gate, the company that operates this, is getting a lot of criticism. More things are being revealed about the warnings uh, that some in the field issued in recent years to OceanGate, questions about the reliability of the hull and the submersible they were creating. A guy named Alfred McLaren, he's the president emeritus of the Explorers Club of New York City. Explorers Club is an exclusive club of people who adventure around the world. He told a couple media outlets that he's had people ask him whether they should make a dive in the submersible. And he said, quote, don't do it. I wouldn't do it in a million years. Titan, which is the name of the submersible, was based on some novel concepts that differed from standard designs for submersibles. And unlike most deep sea craft, Titan has not undergone any certification by reputable marine groups that do licensing work for this type of craft. Apparently, OceanGate actually uh, had certification for a different uh, submersible that went to shallower depths, but didn't pursue that. They pursued this novel construction for this craft. Now, of course, they have made multiple trips down to the Titanic. Uh, they've taken dozens of people down there. They've done a whole bunch of deep dives. There have been a bunch of cancel dives. But unsurprisingly, get, while this search uh, takes place, you do have a lot of people who are like, I told them. I told them that this wasn't going to work. All that said, Jill, depending on when all of you are listening to this podcast, uh, things may have developed further. Uh, this is the latest as of late Wednesday night. Of course, our fingers crossed here that they're able to find the submersible at some point today, uh, given the time frame, the concern that life support could run out at some point today. Okay, now to another tragedy at sea that many Mo News followers on Instagram say that they think should be getting a lot more attention from the media. We're talking about this ship that sunk near Greece. More than 700 migrants, including men, women, and children, 
from countries like Syria, Pakistan, and Egypt may have drowned in a shipwreck off the coast of Greece last week. This makes it one of the worst shipwrecks in modern Mediterranean Sea history. The ship took off from Libya and was headed to Italy. It was run by smugglers that were promising safe passage to Europe for migrants from across Africa, the Middle East, and South Asia. At this point, only 104 people are known to have survived. 80-plus bodies have been recovered, and the search continues for more than 500 others who are still missing. Survivors, though, have started to tell stories of just the absolute appalling conditions on board the ship. They say passengers were denied food and water. They were crammed into tight quarters, forced to stay in the hold of the ship. That's where the cargo is. And then beaten if they tried to reach the deck level. The smugglers also reportedly didn't allow life jackets on the ship. Many of the survivors say that they had to pay thousands of dollars each for a spot on the boat. It was a battered fishing ship, um, but they were looking for a better life in Europe. Nine Egyptian men are suspected of running that migrant smuggling ship. They're now in custody. They face charges that include participation in a criminal organization, manslaughter, and causing a shipwreck. Yeah, Greek authorities are holding them uh, in jail right now. But it does come as questions are being asked about the Greek Coast Guard, which is facing scrutiny for why it didn't intervene earlier as this uh, fishing ship was struggling off of its coast last week. The United Nations has called for an investigation into Greece's handling of the boat uh, amid those claims that they should have taken earlier, initiated a full-scale rescue attempt. Greek officials, though, maintain that those on board that fishing ship said they didn't want help and insisted that they were heading to Italy, their final destination. The Greeks also say that it would have been too dangerous to try and evacuate hundreds of what they say were unwilling people off of this overcrowded ship. The Greeks say that the passengers on that boat, uh, from their perspective, the Coast Guard is saying, were not in danger until just before their boat sank. This all comes against the backdrop, Jill, is that we've seen increasing number of migrants making their way from Africa and the Middle East into Europe. Both Greece and Italy have been pushing back on the number of migrants coming into their countries. So it's believed that the Greek Coast Guard here wasn't going out of its way to save these people, saying, let the Italians deal with this. Now, there are conflicting accounts of what exactly happened when the boat sunk here. Uh, and that's something that uh, international authorities and Greek authorities are trying to get to the bottom of, Jill, because we've heard a number of different stories from Greek Coast Guard officials last week. One survivor said the fishing boat's engine failed and another vessel tried to tow it. That's when the boat sank. And so that's one of the allegations they'll be looking into here, though, again, Greek authorities say they weren't trying to tow it at all. Survivors say that women and children were trapped in the hold of the ship as it capsized, and it just took a couple minutes to sink in one of the deepest spots of the Mediterranean Sea. They also say that the sea was relatively calm that day, that this wasn't due to weather. Now, as you mentioned, those nine Egyptian men, uh, the accused smugglers, are in jail. The Greeks are planning to put them on trial. We should note that the lawyers for the smugglers claim that they are refugees themselves and not the actual smugglers, so we'll have to get to the bottom of that. It does come, Jill, as the EU is trying to help African countries like Tunisia, where many of these migrants are coming from, trying to help them stabilize their economies. And there's a parallel here, Jill, as we talk about the migrant crisis coming from Central America. In South America, across the American border, you're seeing something similar uh, over in Europe, vis-a-vis -vis Africa and the Middle East. An increasing number of migrants coming across as their uh, countries are destabilized by a number of factors. And these European countries having to take a number of steps to deal with the migrants already ashore 
and then try to also uh, stem the tide here by helping the countries where the migrants are originating from. Uh, that has been a priority item here in the U.S. Uh, to help stabilize countries in Central and South America to the extent possible and help ensure that there is a life for these people so they don't all feel like they need to come north. It has been fascinating, though, just to read the comments that people have been making about these two different tragedies or, or stories or however you want to describe them, because there are similarities and yet so many differences. When you look at the five people on board, the submersible trying to look at the Titanic wreck, I mean, this was a a tourism expedition. They paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to go. And you're seeing a massive, almost unprecedented search effort from the U.S. Coast Guard, the Canadian Coast Guard, uh, trying to find them. And then you've got hundreds of migrants packed into this fishing ship that, that by all accounts was in horrible condition. They were treated horribly. And at least here in the United States, we really haven't heard that much about it. We were getting more and more notes from the Mo News community, Jill, on Wednesday uh, with people asking questions about uh, the migrant ship and why they hadn't heard about it. We, we'd reported on it on the Instagram account, but it certainly is not receiving the amount of media attention that the search for the Titanic tourism sub is getting. But it is really remarkable, the contrast here, five people versus 700 plus people, five people who paid an extreme amount of money to go on an arbitrary expedition down to the Titanic, whereas then you had the 700 plus people you know, scrapping together every dollar they have to try to make their way for a new life with their children um, to Europe. So really stunning contrast here on a variety of fronts. Uh, and we are making a point here of telling you both stories. Uh, we're doing it also in the newsletter today, if you got into your inbox, as well as over on the Instagram account. Okay, we have a lot more to get to in today's podcast, including today's speed read and on this day in history. But I want to take a moment to thank our big sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. We're often talking about your health, food trends, the importance of getting all your nutrients, and we know how difficult it is. I know how difficult it is. Well, one way to get all the important vitamins is through Athletic Greens AG1 powder. I started using it back last fall. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy. It's quick. It lets you get on with your Day, knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. AG1 also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. And what's great is they have a special deal right now for the Mo News community. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D in five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit drinkag1.com, that is drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of the offer. We have a link in the show notes as well. That's where you can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it just one time for just one month. Again, drinkag1.com slash monews, that is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal. It's an opportunity to really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read. Let's start with the economy. From CNBC, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said on Wednesday that more interest rate increases are likely ahead until additional progress is made on bringing down inflation. He's speaking a week after the Fed decided for the first time in more than a year not to raise rates again. Powell indicating that the move likely was just a brief respite rather than an indication that the Fed is done hiking. He said inflation has cooled, but, quote, remains well above the Fed's 2 percent target and that the central bank still has a lot more work to do. The expectations are that the Fed will raise rates two more times this year. 
Powell said, quote, inflation has moderated somewhat since the middle of last year. Nonetheless, inflation pressures continue to run high and the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go. Jill, he used a driving metaphor in his testimony before Congress yesterday, comparing that the route to bring down inflation uh, has now reached local roads, that we took the highway and now we're taking local roads. And so he said, as you get closer to your destination and you try to find that destination, you slow down even further. So they uh, engaged in these rate hikes uh, month after month after month after month over the course of the past year and a half. And now we're in the slowdown period. Uh, We're in local traffic, Jill, as we try to bring down inflation. (laughs) And so on these complex subjects, I I will appreciate uh, Powell actually trying to put them in terms the rest of us can understand. Now, one of the things the Fed looks at is core inflation, which excludes food and energy prices, which tend to move around a bit more. And that shows that inflation is running at a 4.7 year-over-year rate through April. And so that core number for May was at 5.3%. They want this, as you mentioned, closer to 2%. So it's going to take a while to get there. Um, All Powell would say is it's a long way to go. So that is an undefined period here. Powell did talk about a couple other things, including the labor market. So far, despite some high-profile tech cuts, we've seen companies continue to hire or at least hold steady. Now, in this upside-down world that we live in, the Fed is looking for uh, companies to stop hiring and for some layoffs as a sign that things will be getting better when it comes to inflation. Good news is bad news. Bad news is good news. Right. So as we've told you, the Fed almost is looking for some bad news here because when you continue to see good news, which is hiring and people spending money, that's not going to bring down inflation. Inflation will come down when demand comes down, when people have less money, hence the interest rate hikes. So we we live in these days now where we're actually looking for bad headlines. The market is, all of us are, as a sign that uh, inflation is calming down. So as of right now, open jobs still exceed the labor pool, though that is starting to uh, come down here. And that's something that they're going to be tracking. I was listening to um, the Daily podcast recently, and they did an episode about inflation. And they talked about how much of just inflation cooling is luck and not necessarily because of the Fed's policies in terms of rate hiking. For example, rate hikes have nothing to do with gas prices, which make up a huge part of the inflation number. You know, the gas prices are much more associated with the war in Ukraine or OPEC and how much oil they're putting into the market. All right, moving on from Yahoo Finance. Amazon is facing a new lawsuit from the U.S. government accusing the company of enrolling millions of consumers into Amazon Prime without their consent and then making it hard for them to cancel. The Federal Trade Commission is suing Amazon in federal court, alleging that the company has, quote, knowingly duped millions of consumers into unknowingly enrolling in Amazon Prime. The agency says Amazon used manipulative, coercive, or deceptive use user interface designs known as dark patterns to trick consumers into enrolling in automatically renewing prime subscriptions. The FTC is seeking civil penalties and a permanent injunction to prevent future violations. In a statement, Amazon calling the FTC's claims false on the facts and the law, saying, quote, the truth is that customers love Prime, and by design, we make it clear and simple for customers to both sign up for or cancel their Prime membership. Notice the active language there from Amazon. The FTC says that under substantial pressure, 
Amazon changed its cancellation process just this past April, but that violations are ongoing and it still requires what the FTC says is five clicks on desktop and six on mobile for consumers to cancel Amazon Prime. Now, as for what they call dark patterns, Jill, sounding very menacingly, what dark patterns are is basically a difficult way to cancel. So the FTC describes the platform bombarding people with prominent options to sign up for Prime, while options to shop without Prime were harder to spot. In some cases, a button to complete the purchase did not clearly say that it would also enroll the shopper in Prime. So when you hear the term dark patterns, basically confusing buttons on the screen uh, that somehow got you into Prime or got you to keep Prime. And the context here is important. This lawsuit is just one of several actions that the current White House has engaged in, intended to rein in the outsized market power of big tech, including Amazon. Just on May 31st, there was that $5.8 million settlement with Amazon's Ring doorbell camera unit. That's after the FTC found that the cameras had been spying on some customers. On the same day, the Federal Trade Commission said Amazon also agreed to a $25 million settlement to settle allegations that it violated children's privacy rights by failing to delete Alexa recordings at the request of parents and keeping them longer than necessary. So there's been a string of these things now as the government really tries to crack down on Amazon. Keep in mind, Amazon Prime is officially the world's largest subscription program, generating $25 billion a year in revenue for the company. Prime members in the U.S. pay $139 a year and drive much of the sales volume. At the same time, though, one analyst was quoted yesterday as saying that the FTC is making an example of Amazon, but it is quite common for companies to make it more difficult to cancel an account than it is to create one. Uh, famously, Jill, for years, uh, you know, it's the butt of many jokes, but trying to cancel your cable package, among other things, has always been immensely difficult, requiring multiple phone calls, multiple operators. Uh, and so it appears here, though, that the FTC has decided to take Amazon uh, on when it comes to this. And on the other end of the spectrum, for everybody who loves Amazon, Wednesday's lawsuit came on the very day that Amazon announced the July dates of its major sales event, Prime Day, which is actually Prime Days. It's at July 12th and 13th this year. Whether you love Amazon or you realize that you still have Amazon Prime based on the way the <laughs> FTC case goes here. So you might have chosen to have Amazon Prime or you might still have Amazon Prime. Either way, Prime Day coming up in just a couple of weeks, everybody. Affectionately known as Amazon's garage sale. All right, from the BBC, a story that a number of you messaged us about on Instagram. 37 people have been injured, four of them seriously, after a large explosion in central Paris on Wednesday. The blast took place in a building that housed a design school and the Catholic Education System headquarters in the French capital. Emergency workers are searching through the wreckage of the building with at least two thought to be missing. The area where the explosion took place runs south from the Latin Quarter in Paris's left bank area that is popular with tourists and known for its student population. Yeah, Jill, a number of people sent me videos on this on Instagram on Wednesday, very concerned. Of course, there have been, unfortunately, a number of terrorist attacks in recent years in Paris, and that was the first concern here. Uh, but according to witnesses, in this case, there was a strong smell of gas before the blast, and that is the focus of the investigation so far, though authorities as of late Wednesday have not determined the exact cause of the blast. The Paris prosecutor was quoted as saying that initial checks of the camera footage suggest the explosion occurred within the building. And so they'll continue to investigate that. The left bank area, though, Jill, this is in the fifth arrondissement, if you know uh, Paris, 
beautiful area of the city. Most that is some A plus pronunciation. I will admit to you, Jill, I took French in junior high and high school and a bit of college. So I remember a few words uh, here and there, but I still take pride in my pronunciation of some of the words. (laughs) (laughs) All right, from the Associated Press, for the first time, U.S. regulators approved the sale of chicken made from animal cells, allowing two California companies to offer lab-grown meat to the nation's restaurant tables and eventually supermarket shelves. The Agriculture Department gave the green light to Upside Foods and Good Meat, Firms that had been racing to be the first in the United States to sell meat that doesn't come from slaughtered animals, what's now being referred to as cell-cultivated or cultured meat. As it emerges from the laboratory and arrives on dinner plates, the move launches a new era of meat production aimed at eliminating harm to animals and drastically reducing the environmental impacts of grazing, growing feed for animals, and animal waste. The CEO of Good Meat says that instead of all of that land and all of that water that's used to feed all of these animals that are slaughtered, we can do it in a different way. The action came months after the FDA deemed that products from both companies are safe to eat. Company officials are quick to note that the products are real meat. They are not meat substitutes like Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat, which makes products from plant proteins and other ingredients. Yeah, that's something I learned today is this lab-grown meat is not vegetarian. It is technically meat. I imagine we'll all be learning much more about cultivated meat here in the coming years with this FDA approval. It's apparently grown in steel tanks using cells that either come from a living animal, a fertilized egg, or a special bank of stored cells. In Upside's case, it actually comes out in large sheets that are then formed into shapes like chicken cutlets and sausages. Good Meat already sells cultivated meat in Singapore, which was the first country to allow it. The U.S. is now second. Uh, That's where they turn masses of chicken cells into cutlets, nuggets, shredded meat, and satays. But don't look for it in grocery stores anytime soon. It's only been approved for a couple of restaurants here. Cultivated chicken is much more expensive than meat from whole farmed birds and cannot yet be produced on a mass scale. So the companies plan to serve the new food in a couple exclusive restaurants. Upside has partnered with a San Francisco restaurant called Bar Cren, while good meat dishes will be served in the DC restaurant run by chef and owner Jose Andres, who you might be familiar with. Globally, more than 150 companies are focusing on meat from cells, not only chicken, but also pork, lamb, fish, and beef, which scientists say will have the biggest impact on the environment. Upside COO says, are you ready for this quote, Jill? The most common response we get is, oh, it tastes like chicken. (laughs) But even the companies acknowledge that many consumers are skeptical, even squeamish about eating chicken grown from cells here. There's a new poll out. Half of U.S. adults say that they are unlikely, as of 2023, to try meat grown using cells from animals. When asked to choose from a list of reasons for their reluctance, most said they're unlikely to try because, quote, it just sounds weird. Another significant portion of people said they don't think it would be safe. Jill, are you ready to try it anytime soon? You know what? I actually am. I have no problem with this at all. And I very much buy the argument that this is much better for the environment and more humane. Jill, we've been running a poll on the Instagram account. About six hours in the poll, we've had about 10,000 Mo News committee members uh, respond on whether they would try this chicken. Uh, 21% say, cluck, yes, I would try it. 79%, no, I'm too chicken. So right now, only 2080. <laughs> Four out of five Mo News committee members say they won't try. At the same time, Jill, as I was thinking about this, if you ever have, I don't know, one of those chicken sandwiches at a fast food place, 
Do you think you're getting real chicken there? Given the state of the meat industry these days, the antibiotics being used, the various ways they have raised some of these chickens, I would say to people who respond to that poll saying uh, this lab-grown meat just sounds weird, uh, when you hear details about some of the way that our animals are raised these days, you might say the same thing. That's what I'm talking about, Moshe. <laughs> All right, and this story from a local Long Island paper, Newsday, but I do think it pertains to kids everywhere. When we say at the top of the podcast that we read the news so you don't have to, Jill is assigned to reading Newsday so you don't have to as a, as a local <laughs> Long Islander. I have Long Island covered, Moshe. <laughs> do know. not worry. Good to know. <laughs> Okay, the pandemic class, 2023's graduating seniors on how COVID-19 bookended their high school experience. 18-year-old Zachary Zutler remembering learning about the quarantine's start when he was a freshman at an after-school lacrosse practice. And then it was just last month when he was a senior and getting ready to graduate that the World Health Organization declared the pandemic over. He says of his high school experience, this year was probably the first completely normal year. It felt like everything was like it was supposed to be. A few other quotes from graduating seniors as they look back on their high school experience. Manahil Tarek saying, when quarantine hit in March of 2020, it was such a shock to everybody. At first, students were excited. Two weeks off, we can go home and do whatever we want. The teachers weren't prepared, so they didn't send us home with a lot of homework. But as the pandemic surged on, they say it was just hard to be pulled away from friends and teachers. Very surreal and a very confusing time. Another student, Alyssa Williams, said that she lost a lot of interest in school clubs and activities that she was a part of. She said she just gave up on high school. Quote, I went through a period where I didn't do any homework. My grades got pretty bad at the end of freshman year. Many students say that their sophomore year was the toughest, both academically and socially, because many schools went on a hybrid schedule. One student saying you had to wake up and remember if you were even going into school that day. And then you come back to school, everyone has masks on. So they say you really couldn't connect. Um, and of course, there's all those big events that were missed. For example, if you tested positive or were around someone who tested positive and then you had to quarantine. Yeah, Jill, it remains to be seen what the long-term impact is for these kids that you know really never quite had a normal high school experience. Of course, every age bracket that you speak to, whether kids were dealing with it from you know uh, infancy through elementary school, elementary school through middle school, middle school through junior high, uh, they all will have different impacts because they all went through crucial years or times of their life in abnormal circumstances. It's something I've talked about a lot with, with even friends of mine, where no matter what stage of life you're at, the pandemic impacted you in some capacity. But the thing about high school students and even college students is you only go through that once. Right. So you only really get one senior prom or some of these big events that high schools have. And these can be pivotal moments in people's lives. Or extracurricular activities or sports teams that you're associated with. There's a whole variety of things, you know, that millions and millions of people have had their lives, you know, uh, altered permanently because they weren't able to go through certain experience or went through alternative experiences. I appreciate you pulling this story out. It's an interesting way to think about these last four years through the eyes of these high school students. One is quoted in the story talking about a positive outcome of all of this, that 
people now prioritize mental health more after being isolated. Seeing people experience depression and anxiety um, has now put more of a focus on mental health and mental well-being. Another student uh, in the piece also looks at the bright side here, saying that COVID through these past couple of years has taught us to overcome any adversities that we face, taught us to adapt, showed us how powerful we really are. Cheers to the class of 2023, Jill. Absolutely. And I do think even for my daughter that one day she's going to look back on pictures of her as a two-year-old with a mask on and be like, what was going on over there? And I'll say, oh, you don't even know. (laughs) The further and further we get away from COVID, we start to look back at some of these things that we experienced, you know, wiping down groceries, you know, some of the things that we were witnessing and it just starts to seem more and more like a bizarro world. Like, wait, that happened? Speaking of things that happened, we bring you our regular segment on this day in history on this June 22nd. We're going to begin today, Jill, in the year 1611. An English explorer named Henry Hudson, you might recognize his name. He has a bay named after him, a river named after him, uh, and I think a ceiling fan company, Hudson Bay Company. Just what happened, Moshe? <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> Anyhow, he was an English explorer that was trying to find a short route from Europe to Asia through the Arctic Ocean. So he headed west from England and made several attempts to find Japan. The first time he hits what we now know today as the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., not a route to Japan. A couple of attempts later, he makes his way up a river that he thought would lead him to Japan and led him to Albany. And we now know it is the Hudson River, right, off of New York. He then goes back to England and says, no, 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 no. I just need to go a little further north and I will find my way to Japan. And so his crew says, fine, Henry, we're going to try again. And he makes his way through Canada into what we now know as Hudson Bay. On this day in history, in 1611, his crew discovered that, no, Henry, this was not Japan. They put him and his son in a boat and left him behind. A mutiny on Henry Hudson's ship, never heard from again, after Henry Hudson failed several times to find Japan by crossing through North America. And all these years to have a fan company named after him. (laughs) Jill, I think about it every time we see the Hudson River. I think about poor Henry trying to make those attempts to Japan And then one day his crew saying, time's up, buddy, you're gone. We're going to fast forward here a few centuries to June 22nd, 1940, on this day in history. The first Dairy Queen opened in Joliet, Illinois. A cone just cost a nickel. A Sunday cost eight cents. And so Dairy Queen would take off, obviously very well known, thousands of Dairy Queens around the world. The Blizzard, though, the famous Blizzard, would not hit stores until the 80s in 1985. Fun fact, Jill, according to the FDA, Dairy Queen is not ice cream. It does not have enough butter fat in it to be able to be called ice cream. There's something about that that feels very off-putting. <laughs> Still right? tastes delicious. It tastes delicious, though, Jill. That it does. I'm not going to hate on it. As we talk in this entire podcast about you know fake meat, uh, Dairy Queen not being ice cream, still tastes great. All right, let's fast forward to the 1980s here. On this day in 1986, for you soccer fans or football fans, if you're abroad, the Hand of God goal took place today in the 1986 World Cup. This, of course, is the famous goal by Argentine player Diego Maradona, who scored the Hand of God goal. They call it that because the ball struck his hand, but the referee mistakenly thought it had hit his head. So they call it the Hand of God because it allowed Argentina to defeat England and Argentina then to go on to win the 86 World Cup. A couple birthdays we celebrate today. In fact, Two women turning 74 today, born on the same day 74 years ago, Meryl Streep and Senator Elizabeth Warren, both 74 today. And we end here with a bit of movie history. As I teased at the top, on this day 39 years ago, The Karate Kid premiered in theaters. The legendary film following Daniel LaRusso, played by a young Ralph Macchio, 
uh, versus his arch nemesis, Billy Zapka. He was bullied, and LaRusso, of course, finds a handyman slash war veteran, Mr. Miyagi, to help him defend himself. It's actually credited the film, Jill, with helping to really popularize karate in the U.S. That's totally not surprising, and I'm just thinking of wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. For everyone watching on YouTube, um, I am doing the hand motion. Yeah, she's doing it. She's doing it. If you're watching on YouTube, which, by the way, we put all podcasts on YouTube, she made the wax on, wax off motions. And Jill, will end here with one more bit of movie history. 22 years ago today, June 22nd, 2001, The Fast and the Furious premiered. This was the first film 22 years ago. This, of course, is a film about street racing. Well, there have been a few sequels to Fast and the Furious, Jill. In fact, officially 12 sequels. Fast X, so technically Fast 10, premiered last month. But there are a few websites that have tried to do a full accounting, and the count right now is 12 Fast and the Furious films. Allegedly, Jill, there's only going to be one more after this. And with that, we have hit the finish line of this podcast. We want to thank everyone. (laughs) We want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And thanks to all of you who are joining Mo News Premium. We're offering two free months right now on the annual package over at mo.news slash premium. It gives you access to a members-only podcast, a members-only Instagram account where we're answering your questions, more behind-the-scenes content. Uh, Jill, you have an interview out today over over on the Members Only podcast. I do, Mosh. For anybody in the allergy community, I talked to Amy Rose, who created a program called the Allergy Release Technique. It's a homeopathic program that I've got to say, and I still knock on wood, it worked for my daughter, who had a slew of, of just really debilitating food allergies, and she can now free eat. We don't really say cured in the allergy community, but she can eat all of the things that she previously uh, was very allergic to. So if you join Mo News Premium, you'll get access to that immediately. Uh, look out for that today, um, as well as all the other content, mo.news slash premium to help support what we're doing here on this account. All right, bye everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.